0: Grateful to be with you again this afternoon. Thankful that you've chosen to be here to study for a few moments together. Uh, We think we've hopefully got our uh, sound issues worked out again, at least for the short term. I promised to quit beating on the pulpit. Maybe that won't hurt anything. Uh, And it was my fault this morning. Uh, Some of you noticed that you probably couldn't hear me, and then I got really loud, Uh, but I'd put that lapel mic on, and I think I didn't turn it on. And so, Keith and Travis were trying in vain to fix the problem that I created because they couldn't do anything about me forgetting to turn the pack on up here. Uh, but uh, thankful for them and, and doing our best to try to uh, make it where you can hear here, people can hear online. Uh, but we're certainly grateful that you were here with us this afternoon. I feel like I need to acknowledge as well uh, several of you give me a hard time and, and said that uh, Clayton outdressed me this morning. You wondered if he was preaching because uh, he was all dressed up in his suit. I feel like I need to also acknowledge I think Branson outdressed me this morning as well. Uh, he had his jacket and hat on today, he, he was looking sharp. So uh, several of our young people are gone to the team singing this afternoon, but we're uh, that some of are still here and for our chance to study this afternoon. We are, of course, continuing with our one word study that we've kind of been doing one word a month. We've worked our way through uh, a whole lot of words about many different topics. We've been in the midst of a series on life's challenges, uh, some words that are not exactly fun, of course, to think about. Um, As you notice on the screen there, uh, next month, God be willing, we'll uh, pick a Sunday and we'll study the word grief. I kind of used the play on words this morning to use that as uh, good grief, to think about guilt uh, in that kind of way. But the English Standard Version does use that term there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I like the title. They selected for the book Life's Challenges because none of us are immune from these things. Some of us struggle more with these kinds of feelings and emotions than others. Uh, but it's certainly something that we can deal with. And even as we said this morning, guilt which makes us just feel awful sometimes. We don't like to feel guilty about something, can be used for good. And even this afternoon, we're going to kind of try to come back around to that uh, by the end of the lesson. And so we are ready for the word guilt. Uh, It's interesting when you think about the Bible, it's almost impossible for us in one lesson to examine the full breadth of the Bible's discussion on guilt. But what's interesting is to mention that the Bible's overall story is really about guilt, but not just that we are, we are terrible sinners, we are awful people, and God is so great, and you need to feel guilty, but it's actually from guilt to redemption. Uh, and so that's encouraging for us and while it's going to be hard for for us to do that in the word study that I've used out of this this particular book this particular study uh, they try to do a kind of an overview of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 where we first are introduced to sin and guilt all the way through the cross I decided to take the lesson in a little bit of a different direction uh, although we'll think about some of the passages that they use but it is uh, kind of fun or interesting, neat to think about. That's really the message of the Bible. I took a class at Free Hardiman uh, when I was there and we talk about uh, different, this idea of God's scheme of redemption. Uh, That's, you know, whole quarter studies sometimes. There's books that have been written about the scheme of redemption. Well, what is that? Well, it's God's plan to redeem mankind, especially in light of opening your Bible and finding sin right there at the beginning not the very beginning of course in the in the very beginning with the creation but there in the garden we meet sin and we meet guilt and so that scheme of redemption is a absolutely wonderful study as we've tried to do our we've called it you know sunday school catch-up on sunday morning uh, we've seen a little bit of that but all of those stories the history of israel all of that are pointing towards and culminates in the cross as there is that release of guilt, supposed to be that release of guilt. So what is guilt? Uh, Before we get into the words that are used both in the Hebrew and the Greek, let's think for just a moment about what is guilt. Well, some people would say that it is an emotional feeling or a particular sin. Again, I've kind of emphasized several times, but I think about a feeling because I often think about that, that feeling in the pit of my stomach or that feeling of where I just feel kind of weird about something and I'm walking around the house, I'm like, I don't... I don't know what it is, and then I remember, oh, you know, I got this email, or, oh, I've got to make this call to to fix something I messed up, and and it's going to be awkward, and I kind of have this guilt that I've made a mistake, and I've got to fix it, and, you know, maybe the person I'm calling is not going to like it because I'm going to have to let them down about something I said, and and, and that feeling that I'm carrying around is guilt, and so some people think it's just a, a feeling, an emotional feeling, but what does it mean to be guilty, Well, our modern definition would carry with it the idea, of course, of judicial status. That's what we commonly think of when we talk about guilt. We think about innocence or guilt or innocent until proven guilty. But in the Bible, being guilty is to find a person or find yourself in violation of divine commandment. There's like always, almost always with our slides and sometimes our points, there's important words there, right? A violation. We're going against God. Divine commandment. It is God. It's not just, you know, the state troopers or it's not just the government, but it's divine commandment. That is guilt. The offense or the violation can be directed toward God Himself. We think about those who are guilty of worshiping false gods, those who are guilty of blasphemy. It can be towards our fellow man, murder, false witness, stealing. We can be guilty towards someone. It also can be said of a group of people, right? In the Old Testament, when we think about Israel or Judah, as we've talked about the Sunday school catch-up, Israel was guilty of being this way towards God. And really with the words we're going to mention very quickly in just a moment, the, all of it is the concept of guilt, iniquity, sin, transgression, You know, all of that, although we kind of separate sin from guilt, but all of it's kind of connected in some of these words as we look through the Bible. All right, so when you go to the Old Testament, uh, the, the Hebrew word that you use is avon, and it is uh, used and translated most, most often as guilty or, or guilt or iniquity. It is, again here, kind of give you a little bit of the way it's used, sin, wickedness, iniquity. It often has a focus on the guilt or the liability that is incurred and the punishment to follow, right? We said this morning that worldly guilt sometimes comes along with that consequence. We don't like the consequence we find ourselves in. Unfortunately, sometimes we can't do anything about that. We talk about murder sometimes that the family decides, well, I'm going to forgive that person. You know, maybe the, the family and the person who was killed is a Christian. And we say, "Oh, well, that family ought to forgive them. Well, and they should forgive them in a sense. But there is also the consequence uh, of their action. They will have to probably serve jail time because of that. And so there is this uh, liability that's incurred and the punishment to follow. Uh, there's another word. I didn't put it on the screen, but to just spell it out for you, it is S A M a psalm, A-S-A-M. It's also translated guilt. In the Old Testament, it's also understood to have legal culpability. Uh, so, you know, there is an, an object, objective dimension to this. Uh, we're going to talk more about uh, guilt and the, the emotion of it as we finish in just a few moments. Um, but it's the state of a person who has acted wrongfully. We don't need a lot of help understanding that. We feel guilty, we try to teach our children about that, but that is, I didn't give you a lot of verses or any of the verses that you can look it up, but, but those are, or that is the way this particular word is used in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. We go over to the New Testament, and the word is itia, uh, and it is the Greek word. What's interesting about this particular word is uh, that it is used in the English Standard Version, it is used seven times. Five of those are around the dealings of Jesus and Pilate. You remember that trial there? Uh, Robert's helped us a lot. Brother Robert has and others thinking about uh, the trial and Jesus as he's getting ready for the end of his life there. And so as he's going through all of that, five times out of the seven, this word guilt is used within the statements of Pontius Pilate concerning Jesus' legal status, in particular in regards to Roman law. And so we see this kind of going back and forth between them, and Luke and John discuss this as well. And so that's the place that it's most often used. That doesn't mean we don't discuss sin or, uh, you know, wrong accusation, charge, guilt. That those concepts are carried in other places, as we'll see in some other scriptures. But this is one place in particular that's really emphasized when it comes to Jesus and Pilate there at the end of the gospel accounts. I want to look at three examples. If you have your Bible, you'll want to maybe turn and follow along. The first one is in John chapter 9. Pardon me, John chapter 9. When you turn over to John 9, it begins with the story of the man who was born blind. And in John 9, 1 through 11, or 1 through 12, you see this is the case where Jesus in, uh, in particular verse number six where he spits on the ground uh, made the clay with the saliva anointed the man's eyes and tells him to go wash and he comes back seeing and so that occurs and sets the stage in verses one through 12 for what comes beginning in verse 13 but even goes further than that in fact what I have on the screen here goes all the way down to verses 35 through 41 so it's the whole chapter dealing with blindness and, of course, not just a man who was born blind, but as my Bible has a man-made heading, but beginning in verse 35, true vision and true blindness. The group of Pharisees had overheard Jesus' conversation with this man. This man, in the verses that we skipped over, beginning in verse 13, he's berated by the Pharisees with regards to who healed him. You see this gap, beginning in verse 13, of no red letters in your Bible if you have a a red letter Bible, because they're questioning this man, they're berating him and asking him these questions. And so just before Jesus proceeds to refer to the Jewish leaders using metaphors like he, uh, excuse me, like thief and robber, as he's going to talk about in John chapter 10, because he's going to talk about being the good shepherd. And he's going to use those phrases to uh, kind of make this parallel between them and thieves and robbers. He answers their tongue in cheek question which occurs in verse number 40 and verse number 40 they say kind of smart Alec, right tongue in cheek are we also blind they know they're not blind like this man was blind he couldn't see but jesus answers in verse 41 if you were blind you would have no sin but now you say we see therefore your sin remains I read that with sort of a sarcastic tone to, to use some emphasis there. Jesus, of course, is not being you know sarcastic in sort of a sinful way or smart-aleck way because he would not do that, but he's trying to drive the point home that you're saying you see, therefore your sin remains. There was a, an author, a scholar, who said this, explaining what Jesus' response was. He said it this way, If they, the Pharisees, like the man born blind, had been prepared to acknowledge their ignorance. See, he's acknowledging, he's blind. If they had been prepared to acknowledge their ignorance, they, like him, would not be guilty of sin. But because they claimed to know and were unwilling to learn, their guilt remained. Their presumption of knowledge kept them from seeing the truth. So here's an occasion where, like we said this morning, the right response to guilt is to learn and grow and change. They were not willing to do that. They claimed to have it figured out. They claimed they didn't need Jesus to tell them what to do. And so their guilt would stay that way. It would keep them from seeing the truth. They were the blind ones. Oh sure, they can see what's in front of them. They can walk and do all the things that those of us that can see can do, but they are truly blind, especially when it comes to their spiritual condition. What about secondly, Acts chapter two? As the writer of this particular section of the, the study says, you know, Acts two uh, is a plain narrative by which we have an oft-referred to passage in the church, right? When we think about Acts 238 or this section of scripture we always mention. But think about the entire context of this moment in time. This great moment in time, it truly is. But the people who are there, they authorized and supported the crucifixion of Jesus. So what do they have? They have guilt. They are guilty for being the ones behind Jesus being crucified. They are the ones who sinned. And in this example of guilt, we realize that what they do in verse 37, at the end of verse 37, is the right response. If we are to learn and grow and change, not deny, not ignore, not blame, they didn't say, well, wait a minute, Peter. You're not perfect. Who are you to tell me what to do? Wait a minute, Peter. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't actually do it right. I'm not in charge. It wasn't my fault. It was the leader's fault. It was Pilate's fault or Herod's fault or somebody else's fault. They said, what shall we do? I know that we are so used to this. And and Peter says in verse 36, you crucified the Son of God. This is Jesus whom you crucified, who is both Lord and Christ. He tells them what to do in verse 38. But if we try to bring it down to our level and the interaction that we sometimes have, Peter says, you're wrong. And then they have to have a response. Their response is, well, what do we need to do? You ever have an interaction like that when you're telling somebody they're wrong? Hopefully, maybe, but if you're like me and I'm this way as well, I don't mean that I'm the one that's always right about it, but whether somebody tells me I'm wrong or I'm trying to tell somebody else maybe they're wrong, our response is usually the opposite. Well, sorry, I'm, I know I should have done that, but you know this got in the way. I start making excuses. I start blaming somebody else. If it weren't for these other things that, that somebody was making me do, I could do what you asked me to do. It's hard to hear you're wrong and to say, well, then what do I need to do? But that's the challenge that we have. That's what the people exhibit here. And really, the truth is, realization, honesty must precede repentance. And, and even baptism in this case. I like the way it was said in, in this statement. Realization must precede repentance and baptism must follow repentance for the guilt to be removed. When we talk about these steps... You know, some people say, I don't like you call it the steps of salvation, right? Because some people say, well, I've heard Jesus's words all my life. So why do I have to start at the bottom? I like something, I don't like to say it that way. I can understand. The point, though, is that a person must realize, and it truly is like a stair step to get to each next level because a person can realize they're in sin and do nothing about it. A person can realize their sin and be willing to repent or say they're sorry but not be willing to be baptized. But all of these things must be followed in order for the guilt to be removed, which is why Peter tells them, you are wrong, you have done this sin, you have killed the Son of God. And they say, well, then what shall we do? And he tells them. He tells them what they need to do to have the guilt of sin, the stain of guilt to be removed. One more, and I want to go back to the Old Testament for this one. Genesis chapter 42 If you know the end of Genesis, of course, it begins uh, a little bit earlier than that, even all the way back to chapter 37. But Genesis 37 through the end of the book is the story of a family of brothers, right? And in particular, the brother that we think of is uh, Joseph. And the devotional that was used in the study for this was interesting because he is talking about the, the title of this devotional is Lunch is sitting heavy, which is probably the way most of us feel right now, right? Lunch is sitting heavy, although their lunch is a little more serious, right? Because they take a break from their work, they're going to share a meal, and the topic of the day, at least I'm assuming, I'm going to assume that this is not the topic that took place in the fellowship hall a few minutes ago, but but their topic was, well, if we're not going to kill our brother, then what are we going to do? right? That was their discussion. That's kind of lunch sitting heavy. That's a pretty interesting thing. Jacob is is anything but subtle when it comes to Joseph. Joseph is anything but humble for a time and so we've got this place to where the brothers and Joseph are having this problem. So later they see him coming. They want to kill him. His oldest brother Reuben stops that and instead they put him in the pit. You know a lot of this, of course, by heart. Reuben leaves, and the other ten sit down for lunch. And, you know, somebody said, the writer of the devotional said it, you know, this way. Well, pass the bread. I'm trying to kind of imagine the conversation here. You know, well, uh, pass the bread, okay? Then somebody else says, well, do we slit his throat? You know, we want to kill him. Well, Reuben said not to. Well, so then what? Well, here comes these slave traders. Let's sell them to him. Somebody else says, well, good idea. Can you pass the water? You know, just a regular lunch conversation, right, about killing your brother or at least selling him to these traders. 20 years, something like 20 years passes by where Joseph would live out his dreams. His brothers would live out their nightmares. And in Genesis chapter 42 and verse number 21, they say to one another, we are truly guilty. This is that Assam that we talked about a few moments ago. We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the ang- anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Chapter 42 is right there in the middle of all this going back and forth and them coming and finding Joseph, although they don't always recognize it's him. Um, but think about this. No decision that's motivated out of jealousy, which is what they were doing, breeds good. Any decision that's that comes out of jealousy or resentment is only going to bring about guilt. And they waste away. Do you remember this morning if you were with us? Psalm 32, verse 3. The idea of bones wasting away. They're recognizing that they had wasted too many years in guilt because they were blaming someone else for their Feelings. And that is certainly what can happen to us when we face the heaviness of our guilt and our sin. When we think about guilt and we think about Scripture, we can see that the concept of guilt, according to Scripture, is something that you have, not how you feel. Let me explain a little bit further. But guilt is. Something that you have, not something that you feel. Guilt is the possession of sin. That's why we have that feeling in the pit of our stomach. That's why it sort of makes us feel awkward, because we are possessing sin. If you don't do what God commands, you have guilt. Merriam-Webster, in the English uh, Dictionary, the definition of guilt is sort of applicable to the biblical concept, is this. Responsibility for a crime or for doing something bad or for doing something wrong. The state of one who has committed an offense, uh, especially consciously, consciously. So biblically speaking, how a person feels is irrelevant. They either have guilt or they don't. Now let me challenge you. I think that's a little heavy, right? That's, that's kind of a lot to take in. But it's true. It doesn't exactly matter how we feel about it. We were kind of joking about this the other day uh, as we were talking with some friends, but, but you know, we we've say this sometimes. Well, how do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? Our feelings have a place. Our feelings can be important. And yet at other times, somebody might say, well, it doesn't matter to me how you feel about it. This is the way that it is. You know, this is the occasion. This is where we are. This may be the rule. You know, we tell our kids that sometimes well, I don't feel like doing that right now, Dad. doesn't really matter to me how you feel. Not that your feelings are not important, period. But it doesn't matter how you feel about this. This is the command. This is the instruction. That's the way that it is with God sometimes. Our feelings are important. They can cause us to do certain things. But at the same time, they can be irrelevant because either we have guilt or we don't. Fortunately, though, for Christians, although Christians still sin and possess guilt, Christ's blood overrides that guilt in the sight of God. And so what we have as we think about guilt is we may have guilt, but we also have grace. I try to conclude this morning with the thought that's similar to this, that, that guilt is not meant to be something to bear us down. I, I talked about the telltale heart this morning, and I remember studying that. And it's you know, been a while since I've kind of reviewed that whole short story and, and all, but, but I was listening to someone else talk about it briefly in preparation this week. And, you know, that person who we sometimes say the, the guilty dog barks, right? That person who just can't seem to, to live normally because they, it's eating away at them. That is not how God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to lose sleep. He doesn't want us to feel ill. He doesn't want us to have physical problems because of our guilt, But as we said this morning, it can be good when it leads us to our great God. And the same thing is true with this statement. We may have guilt, but we can also have grace. The picture of God's word, and that gets back to the thing I said this morning about how sometimes people don't want to come talk to the preacher. They don't want to sit in front of the elders. They don't want to humble themselves and admit they've done wrong or have a problem. When all the preacher can say or all the elders can say or all that we as Christians should say is, Come, enjoy the grace. Do we have to get past the awkwardness? Do you have to confess that you've done wrong and you need help? Absolutely. And it hurts and it stings and it doesn't feel good. But once it's said and once we can help, we can move past that to the grace and to the goodness of God. I think that was the one thing that stuck out with me constantly through the encouragement of this study myself, is thinking about so often guilt makes us feel really bad in a way that we want to avoid it. But as we said at the end, all you keep doing is digging that hole deeper and deeper. Then until you confront it, then you're going to be struggling. Once you confront it, there's a freedom that is found in that. That freedom that Paul talks about. And by the way, in the studies and the devotional and, and some of the parts in this particular, uh, this particular chapter, there is so, so much in Romans 5 through 8, all those chapters about guilt and the guilt of sin that we, I just didn't think we'd have time to even barely touch it. Especially without getting into it in great detail but that might be a challenge if you have something that you need to read or want to read to go along with some study read that and think about guilt Paul's point the message the message by the Holy Spirit the message from God is that guilt is something that should cause us to do better to change but we don't have to stay there we can enjoy the grace of God I want to leave you with one illustration uh, that was used here in the devotional study in 2016, uh, the TV network, the FX Network, uh, issued or aired a miniseries that was entitled The People vs. O.J. Simpson. And if you can make out some of the pictures there, that's the actors who acted in that show and not a, a picture from the trial. But of course, it was arguably one of the most public and hotly debated court cases in the 20th century. And as the state of California attempted to prove that O.J. Simpson, the former football star, was guilty of murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, since, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, uh, Ron Goldman. This TV show, and I wouldn't recommend it, I don't think it was maybe something that, that Christians should be watching, but they used it as an illustration to say that it looks back over the years to this case and examines the overwhelming physical evidence that the state had against O.J. Simpson. Now, I'm not here to litigate it or to to go through what you might have felt about that case or whatever, but we can't can't debate that it was certainly captured the attention of the nation for a while there. And it kind of broke down to that. Some people say, well, the, the government, you know, the state had so much evidence against Simpson. How in the world could he be proclaimed not guilty? But the key is in this picture because what he had was a dream team, if you will, of high-profile attorneys who were able to convince a jury to find O.J. Simpson not guilty. And the producers of this show detail the money and the legal wrangling it took to acquit the Hall of Fame running back. The point that they make from this particular illustration is, for us, we will not have a dream team of lawyers. On the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, we won't be able to bring in the most high-profile lawyers to help us, nor will we be able to plea bargain away the sentence that we deserve if our sentence is condemned to an eternity in hell. The only advocate that we have cannot be bought with money. There's no amount of fame, there's no amount of money that could be used to bring in the advocate that we have. The free gift of God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And only by that blood can our guilt be taken away. We don't have to get, up, get caught up in the politics. We don't have to get caught up in the money or the fame of people to come in and argue on our behalf. Jesus has taken away our guilt. He has paid the price. We won't have a dream team of high-profile lawyers. But we can be standing on the side of Jesus being able to answer that we've done what he's asked us to do, commanded us to do, that we've been found faithful. When you think about guilt, I hope that you'll take away from both of our studies today the encouragement that we've had, that it's not meant to bear us down, to weigh us down in such a way that we cannot function. That's not the message of God's word. It is his greatness and the grace that we have that we can move past that guilt towards what is good and in service to him. Again, as we conclude the service this afternoon, we extend heaven's invitation. We sing the song that's been selected in just a moment that you would be willing to maybe admit if you are guilty and in need of forgiveness. As we often say, sometimes this is a moment in which there may not be a particular guilt on your heart, but you certainly would like the prayers of your brothers and sisters to encourage you in some way. Whatever the need might be, we're thankful to sing to encourage you, even now as we stand together and as we sing.